we come today as we look at um, the Sermon on the Mount. So we began this last week as we get to the last part of what we've been doing the last year in our Core 52, the last uh, uh, series that we're looking at. It all comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open to Matthew chapter 5, um, where we're going to be here today. Um, we were looking at the theme of the good life and um, what that means and what that looks like from a biblical perspective. Um, and today we want to look at the theme of blessed. Um, that's gone around the last few years, the whole hashtag blessed thing. Um, kind of hokey, but uh, it's a thing nonetheless. And so uh, it's, a, it's a thing. And so we want to ask the question today from God's perspective, what does it mean to be blessed? There was once uh, a time when God appeared to a man and said, I will grant you whichever of the three blessings that you choose. I will give you wisdom or beauty or $10 million. The man thought for a moment and said, well, I will choose wisdom. And so there, a flash of lightning, he is transformed. But he just sat at the table, staring down quietly. One of his colleagues sitting beside him whispered, you have great wisdom now, say something. And the man says, I should have taken the money. Um, being blessed is a matter of perspective. Maybe being blessed means I have lots of money and resources and I can do whatever I want to do with it. Maybe blessed means relational things. Maybe blessed means career things. Maybe blessed means all kinds of things. And then maybe all right in some ways. But what does it mean to be blessed by God, really? What does that mean? What does that look like? And, and we want to look at that today uh, by looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It, the passage begins this way in Matthew 5, verse 1. Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... And so he sets, Matthew sets up this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's the longest recorded sermon of Jesus we have. And when Jesus opens his mouth, what he says begins to define what it means to be blessed in a way that you and I probably would not consider to be blessed in a lot of ways. Um, Jesus says some words that are beautiful to read to, to think about, but if we don't really go deep in them and just get lost in the poetry of them, we certainly miss the point. Jesus wasn't trying to be eloquent. In many ways, he was laying out what the constitution of his kingdom is really all about. He was trying to describe what his people, who really are, in, are following after him, will look like and be like. And so, it, as one pastor said this week, as I was looking at this different themes of, this, of the Beatitudes, the, if, if you go back to Matthew 4, what you find is that Jesus began his preaching by talking about repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then you get to Matthew 5, and really what Matthew 5 begins, it unpacks what it means to repent. What does it mean to live a life of repentance? And the Beatitudes are that. And so today, the main idea that I would ask you to think about with me is that the Beatitudes are really a, a reality check. They are a reality check about what reality are you living? What reality are you living from? What reality are you living for? What reality are you living in your life? Because there are multiple realities, not in some superhero kind of way, but there are realities that you and I can live from and for in our life. There are realities of, based on what we think about the world, what the world is, what the world is for, and what we're here for. And so Jesus brings us a reality check, and he challenges us through these statements and the Beatitudes 
to stop and think about the reality. Am I living for the reality of the kingdom of heaven? Or am I living for reality that's more rooted in the kingdoms of this earth? His reality check begins with one simple word. It's a word that is repeated probably 10 times throughout the course of these verses. It's the word blessed. He said, blessed are you if. And then he gives a statement. And then each of the statements has a promise attached to it. He uses that same formula eight, nine times throughout the course of these verses. But he begins with the word blessed. And it's important to stop there, I think, and think about what that means because Jesus challenges us to think about what kind of life is really blessed by God. We all live in a world that has its own definition or, or definitions of what a blessed life looks like. Uh, several years ago, when Michael Jordan was retiring from the NBA, Jerry Reinsdorf, the president of, of the Chicago Bulls, made this statement, and I think he's dead on right. The American dream is to, if I can find my notes here, the American dream is to reach a point in your life where you don't have to do anything you don't want to do and you can do everything that you want to do. I think that's a pretty good description about the American dream. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. No one's telling you what to do. You're your own person. You're your own boss now. And you have the resources to go do everything you want to do. And a lot of people are living for that. They're hoping that that becomes their reality, that someday I get to a point where nobody can tell me what to do anymore. I'm my own boss, and I've got the resources to go do whatever I want to do in life. That's not a terrible thing, but I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are. The word blessed is used eight times by Jesus or more, and several times throughout the Gospel of Matthew in particular, he uses the word blessed to describe something different than just being free from your boss and free, having the resources to go be free, whatever you want to do. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he says blessed. He uses it to describe a person who has found the right path, the path where God is pleased with you. In many ways, blessed is about what it is that makes God stand and applaud. Many years ago, I think it was 1990 even, Max Lucado came out with a book called The Applause of Heaven. And that book was all rooted in the fact that these are traits that the world probably isn't going to applaud, but heaven applauds each one of them. I like that image to help us process these Beatitudes because as you read them, they're going to sound countercultural to much of what we are told and expected and, and advertisers are pushing us towards. But God celebrates this blessed life with these traits. And thinking about applause, um, upward basketball season is beginning to wind down and we have a few weeks left, but it, it's one of my favorite things. It's the things that keeps me going on tired days um, when it gets to be a long two months. But it's every time a little kid, and it's probably the kid who hasn't scored a lot, when they make that basket, and you hear this little eruption from one little section of the crowd, but that kid immediately, every time, without, a, without, uh, without exception, they turn, they don't look at me, they don't look at their coach, they don't look at their teammates, they look at those people. They look at that family that's applauding in that moment. That's a special moment. And that applause, that, that what are we living for? When you live your life, whose applause are you living for? Are you living for the applause of heaven? And that's what this word blessed is inviting us to consider. Am I living my life in a way where the one audience that matters is applauding my heart response, my lifestyle, everything I'm doing? Is the, is the God of heaven, is he applauding 
my heart and where it's at and where my life is headed. Now, we tend to go through life saying, I will be happy when, I'll think I'll be happy, or that somewhere down the road. But really, God says, just get on my path, and I will make you content. I will make you joyful at a deeper level than the world ever could. And so the Beatitudes challenge our view of a lot of things. One of the things that I think was helpful to me this week is I found someone who came up with the contrast, in in Matthew's gospel in particular, if you want to contrast to the word blessed, what's the opposite of blessed? It's really in Matthew, it's the word woe. If you go to Matthew 23, Jesus comes and, and just like he has the Beatitudes here in Matthew 5, he says, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. But in Matthew 23, he confronts head on the religious elites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and everybody who, who fits into that category, the hypocrites, he calls them. But he's got this series of woes. So on one hand, God is applauding those in Matthew 5. In Matthew 23, heaven is not applauding these hypocrites who, who do all these things and they're, they're whitewashed tombs and they're doing all these things on the outside, but their hearts are far from God. In Matthew 15, verse 7, Jesus parallels that. He says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right on when he prophesied about you. These people honor, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but merely human rules. And so when Jesus gives these beatitudes, he is not talking about superficial religious activities. He's talking about heart issues. He's talking about the condition and the direction that your heart is going and is heading in your life. And so the opposite of blessed is definitely a woe. And so Matthew kind of holds those up at beginnings and ends of his gospel. And so I just want to encourage us today as we think about this reality check that the Beatitudes are, is to just stop and think, who's applause? Because I can do a lot of religious things and people might applaud that. But the question is, is heaven applauding that? And so, uh, what do I think a blessed life looks like? I think what we're going to find, we've got two or three things I want to show you here about the Beatitudes as we reflect upon them. I think the first thing would be this, about this reality check. The Beatitudes present a radical contrast in kingdom values. In kingdom values. You see, the way of Jesus on one hand is very, very different. It's going to look and feel very different than the way or the ways of the world. And Jesus draws those out through the Beatitudes. He very much draws the radical contrast between the way of Jesus and his kingdom and the way of the world and its kingdoms. Now, Jesus talked frequently about his kingdom uh, versus other kingdoms. Um, We can look at a lot of places where he does that. There's a a difference, a, a contrast. But the Beatitudes are one of the best examples of that. And I find it helpful to hold up what this world tears for versus the teachings of Jesus and the Beatitudes. And it isn't hard to see the contrast at all. And so as I was going through this week, I found a few things um, of people who took the Beatitudes and they tried to flip them around and say, what's the opposite value at work in those? So I want to read you three or four of them uh, just for, by way of contrast. The first couple, I think, are on the screen here. Number one, and this one's from Ray Ortland, I think, says the, the unbeatitudes. That this is what, and if, as we read these, you're going to find that, yeah, this is pretty normal. If you do these things, you're going to fit in pretty well with the world. You're going to go along well. You're probably going to succeed in some ways. But heaven won't be applauding. So the unbeatitudes are things like this. Congratulations to the entitled, for this world lies at their feet. Congratulations to the carefree, for they will be comfortable. Congratulations to the pushy, for they will get ahead. Congratulations to the greedy, 
for they shall climb the food chain. Congratulations to the vengeful, for they will be feared. Congratulations to those who don't get caught, for they shall look good. Congratulations to the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. Congratulations to the popular, for this world lies at their feet. J.B. Phillips, many years ago, he, he wrote the Phillips paraphrase, I think, and, and other things. He, he described the, the, un, the opposite of the Beatitudes this way. Happy are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Happy are the hard-boiled, and I like that image, for they will never let life hurt them. Happy are they who complain, for they will get their own way in the end. Happy are the blasé, for they never worry over their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the knowledgeable men of the world, in the ways of the world, he means, for they know their way around. Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. One more I'll show you. Um, Blessed are the wealthy, for they don't need the things of God and don't need God to give them anything. Blessed are those who are always cheery, for they don't have moments when they need Jesus to comfort them. Blessed are the proud, for they can get what doesn't belong to them by grabbing it. Blessed are those who are wicked and have no shame, for they miss out on knowing better. Blessed are those who never spare others who have wronged them, for they will always get what's coming to them. Blessed are the lustful, the greedy, and the grabby, for they will always have an abundance of junk. Blessed are those who stir up strife, for they will always belong to the evil one. Blessed are the quietly apathetic who just go with the flow, for their plain existence is just what they deserve. And blessed are you when others fawn over, admire, and flatter you because of your obvious greatness. Sarcasm intended there. Rejoice and be glad, for you have a huge reward here on earth. For so they treated all the shallow and worldly people before you. I, I find lists like that helpful in understanding, well, what is it that Jesus is drawing out here in the Beatitudes is to look at the opposite value. And so that's what it looks like. And those kinds of traits will get you along well in this world. You will fit in well and move along well and you won't rock too many boats and people will probably applaud that. But if you choose that lifestyle, you may get along in this world for a while. But then Jesus comes along and he presents this radically different way. And it flies in the face of all that feels familiar in this world. He says things like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the broken. Blessed are you when you're broken. Jesus warns us about our undying obsession and trust in self because it's self that makes us balk at even wanting to appear needy at all. It's self that makes us blind to our real need. Many years ago when I was a kid, um, I got this bag of fool's gold. I don't know where I got it at. But I remember always playing with that, thinking, oh, wouldn't this be cool if it was the real thing? And I held on to that. It was just rocks. I think it was actually spray-painted gold, some, some roadside thing. But it was a cheap little thing. But I always thought, man, if, I, if that was real gold, how cool would that be? And oftentimes we hold on to fool's gold, the bags of prestige, of being noticed and important, or the bags of possessions, of feeling significant because we have stuff, or the bags of religious activity, of feeling morally superior to some, than some and most maybe because we do religious things. But Jesus describes the blessed on the poor in spirit in Luke 18 when he told this parable. I'll read it for you. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the, other, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, 
God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Again, lots of religious activity and good behavior. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The message paraphrased, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule in your life. And so blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, he goes on to say, for they will be comforted. It's been said that you can learn a lot about a person from what makes them laugh. But you can learn as much, if not more, from what makes a person cry. I don't think Jesus is calling for us here to walk around joylessly and somber all the time, never enjoying the good things of life. But there's a balance he's calling us to. There is a place for tears in Christ's kingdom because the Bible is a book full of tears. Someone said, all sunshine makes a desert, which was a profound thought. I had to stumble around for a little while, but all sunshine just makes a desert. We need rain. We need that moisture from time to time. So what is causing the mourning in this verse? I think as you go on to listen to what Jesus would say and do, it's two things. It's a burden over the sin and brokenness of the world around us. The world is not as God made it in the beginning. And Jesus came and he was burdened and he was compassionate. And in John 11, he weeps in a moment of grief because death and pain and all the things. There's a burden that ought to come into the heart that isn't callous, that cares, that, is, that causes a mourning because I look around me and the world around me is broken. It's all around us. And so in his kingdom, we care about all the hurt in the world. But not only is the brokenness out there, we also mourn because of the sin in my own heart. Because of the sin that resides in me and the things that that causes me to do and the damage that that does in my world. And so there's this mourning of, of just things that are broken, but it's that mourning that leads to the comfort and the presence of God who comes near to us when we are broken. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth. To be meek and gentle is certainly not a quality that gets uh, you far in this world, people would think. But really what it means to be meek and gentle is the picture of power under control. Maybe you've heard the illustration of, of the war stallions that this word was used for back in the days of Jesus. The Roman Empire had their stallions, but it was the idea of all of that energy and power and strength being harnessed so that a simple bridle brings a horse in submission to its masters. And for a Christian that involves thinking of others above ourselves, it's describing a gentleness and a courteousness in our relationships, which demonstrates that we have a realistic evaluation of ourselves. I've learned to control, to restrain myself. Meek is not weak. Meek is strength that is simply under control and channeled into a way that does good in this world. And as we pursue meekness, we are able to hear God better. We're able to love each other better. We're able to be more receptive in, in leading people and helping people. 
Blessed are the meek, Jesus said, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, Jesus says. Jesus calls us to honestly face the question, what do I want most in life? I can hunger for the praise of people. I can hunger for possessions. I can hunger for power. I can hunger for so many things that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God, with righteousness. They are just self-serving. And so Jesus asks us to wrestle with that question, what do you want most out of life? What do you hunger and thirst for? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul describes the world. Um, it can be applied to lots of different generations in, in history, including our own. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, listen to these words, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. They'll be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unpe unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceits, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. There are a lot of things we can hunger for. But Jesus says, in my kingdom, the hunger that his people will be known for is for righteousness. Righteousness is a word that both talks about my relationship with God and, and the world around me. Righteousness is being right with God, being forgiven and made whole. I, I hunger to be right with God and to do right for God and to see right things for God happen in the world around me. And so there's a sense in which I'm right with God and I, I work for, for good and just things in my world. And so how strong is my appetite for God? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus said, for they will receive mercy. Kingdom people learn mercy from their king. It ought to be a natural byproduct of people who have been impacted by the mercy of King Jesus that we love mercy and we just naturally show it. But that's not the way that it works so many times in the world of kingdom people. Every kid picks up traits from our parents, both good and bad. That's a discouraging thought for anyone who's a parent, right? They're going to pick up on bad things more than my good things probably. But every kid picks up traits from our parents. And kingdom people learn mercy from their king, from their heavenly father. And we certainly ought to be a people who know what mercy is because of our interactions with our father on a regular basis. But there's way too much evidence out there that shows this is a lesson we have not learned well. And so kingdom people lean on mercy for their spiritual life. Everything about you as a Christian is given to you on mercy, not merit. And so because that mercy has been given and your whole spiritual life depends on that mercy, that means that we lend mercy as we have received it. Adrian Rogers, uh, I think he's deceased now, um, preached for a long, long time. And he once said there are three kinds of people in every community. There are the beater-uppers, what's yours is mine and I'm going to get it. There are the passer-uppers, what's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it and I will just pass you by and I won't help you. There, there are the picker-uppers, what's mine is yours and I'm going to help you. Kingdom people are picker-uppers because mercy is a part of their life. And so blessed are the mercy, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, for they will see God. What a promise. What a promise to see God. Anyone who has loved God, who has loved Christ, to hear those words, they will see God, 
your heart ought to have a little excitement about it. It says, oh, that would be a beautiful thing. I would love to see God. But this also gives a problem. I need a pure heart to do it. And I know my heart. And my heart is not pure. It is it, undivided is a word, another way that this is oftentimes used. And so we need a pure heart. And God gives us a pure heart through Christ and through our faith in him. A pure heart is a received gift. And so part of this is fulfilled through God's work in us as he gives us a pure heart. Acts chapter 9, 15, uh, verse um, 8 and 9 says, this is God, they're having a big conversation about the church growing into the Gentiles and all those kind of things. But in the course of that, they say this, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts, purified their hearts by faith. It is a received gift. But a pure heart is not only just a received gift, it's a dedicated pursuit. It's a thing that we must pursue. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, that double-mindedness is what we're fighting against. I just want a sincere faith. I want a sincere heart. I don't want to have double motives. I don't want to be uh, duplicitous. There's my big word of the day. Duplicitous in, in my actions with God or with others. I want to be genuine. I want to be pure in wanting to do God's will and, and for God. And so it's a dedicated pursuit that we all work for, we pray for, we, we repent for. And it's a pure heart is also an anticipated reward, though. What a beautiful promise. First John chapter 3, verse 1 following, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. And so blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. James chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, James characterizes and builds on this whole peacemaking thing when he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, going back to our last one, it is peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Jesus says that people who are living in his kingdom will be known for their desire for real peace, not fake peace, but real peace, that they'll know that difficulty and, and peace sometimes is for Jesus, peace came through a cross. And so it's through self-sacrifice, it's through listening, it's through humility that peace comes. And so blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he adds on another one that kind of flushes this out. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the blessing no one wants, right? All the others are okay, but I don't want this one. This one's not fun. But the kingdom, Jesus makes clear, comes with the expectation of disfavor from time to time. Just as Jesus found disfavor from mostly religious people, there may be times in your life that you may come up against things where the world or, or others may show disfavor towards you. 
Now, note that there is a difference between persecution and oddness or rudeness, all right? So this isn't commending you if you're a jerk. This is simply saying if you are sincerely living out these things and you're just trying to, to honor the audience of one through your life, people are going to push back on that. They're going to ridicule that sometimes. They're going to exclude you. They're going to push you to the margins. And Jesus says, don't lose hearts on that day. Because there's a reward in this. The kingdom of heaven will be, will be yours. And so you're blessed. Heaven applauds when you find yourself in that place. Jesus honors the dishonored. And so Jesus walks through these beatitudes and, and he holds them up in contrast to the values and to the practices of the world and says, my kingdom people will be this. And as I went through that this week, I just thought, well, what do you do with the Beatitudes? Are they just a list of things you should do? I really don't think they're that. They are certainly a measuring stick, but they're not a list of actions. They're a list of who we are. They're character traits that God is growing in our life. And so I thought, well, it's not just a list of things, religious things people should just go try to work hard and do. I think it leads me to the second thing. This is what I, I, I think I would, I'll end us with today. They reflect our hearts and our thoughts about our King. I think the Beatitudes in a lot of ways really reflect a life's view of our King Jesus. How much do you love and adore Jesus? Well, if you love and adore Jesus, your life is just going to have the characteristics of this. You're just going to be drawn in that direction. It's who he's going to shape you to be. It's the fruit that he is going to, to make in your life. And if my life is bearing no tangible fruit of these kinds of traits that people see and feel through their experience with us, then I need to go back and think, well, what do I really think of Jesus? What do I think of him? You see, it's really a measure on how real Christ is to me. Think of it this way. The Beatitudes envision a heart that is ripped open and exposed and open to all the kingdom realities that come with Christ being your king. An unchanged or an unchanging heart is a scary reality that you have either not or are not surrendering to his lordship over your life. You're not loving the king if these truths aren't growing and stirring at some level in your heart. And so when I really know Christ, when I'm really interacting with Jesus as my king, poor in spirit means that the pride is gone out of my life. There is humble brokenness that has taken its place as I stand before the righteous Christ with my worthless and filthy rags of my own righteousness. I have nothing, but I need him. And so there's this poor in spirit. I come as a beggar. I mourn in light of Christ's wholeness and his beauty and his righteousness and his justice and all the things he is. In the light of who he is, the brokenness of my own life and the world around me ought to be felt and embraced. To be meek means I don't have to fight for my way in this world anymore because there is one who has already fought and is fighting for me. I don't have to go through my life demanding all my rights when I know where Christ is seated and I have entrusted my life to him. I can be meek. I can bring my, my strength under control and channel it for kingdom things. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. When I see how good he is, his good way that is full of righteousness and mercy and justice, I hunger for that to be a reality in my life. I hunger for it. It's not something the preacher has to make you guilty so you'll move in that. You hunger for it when you see Jesus who, for who he is. 
merciful, when I experience the mercy of God that has been showered over my whole rebellious life. I can't help but revel in that goodness and the willing look to share it into the lives of people I touch. It just overflows when mercy is on the inside of you. To be pure in heart, in a, in a heart made pure by Christ's work for me, I long to see and live that purity out in my day-to-day life, wrestling with all the impurities and the double motives and all the things that go on in my heart. I have little room nor appetite for the filth of the world and its ways. My hunger changes. My focus changes. Being a peacemaker, appreciating the peace that Christ made between me and God draws me in the direction of working with, for, for peace in the interactions I have with other people than to be insulted or to be persecuted. When I see Christ in his kingdom truth says right above all else, he is the greatest truth, he is the greatest way, he is the greatest life I will ever find. I'm willing to be committed to him and his ways no matter what. I'm not easily pulled or swayed by the cultural forces or currents that aim to steer me away from Christ or to shame me away from Christ. I'm okay with that because I know heaven applauds that. And so I hope that you leave here today not thinking, well, I've got to really work hard on these things. I hope you just run to Jesus. I just hope you run to the king because if you run to the king, these things are just going to naturally grow in your life as he rules over your heart and your life and leads you. You're going to be these things if you just run to Jesus. And so I hope today, lastly, is that the Beatitudes will just help us to reorient our lives around the king and kingdom priorities. I just think the Beatitudes help us to kind of stop and think, okay, in a world of so many values and things, this is what I want to be. As a follower of Jesus, this is who I'm called to. And so may they help us to reorient our lives around our King. And so I hope the Beatitudes will encourage you in the week ahead and that you will take the time to to come back to the King and allow him to evaluate our hearts and evaluate our life and, and to see where am I falling short. And when I find those places... May I come with all the things Jesus has talked about here, a, 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 a broken, repentant, poor in spirit attitude that mourns my sin, that hungers to do what's right and wants to do good for, for godly things in this world. May the King do that in our hearts. Would you pray with me please today? Our God and our Father, we, uh, we are thankful for Jesus. We are thankful that he is our eternal King our eternal king who has served us in the most humble ways of possible by dying on a cross for us. He has shown us his great love. He has shown us his, his passion for us. And so, Father, would you draw our hearts? Would you convict our hearts? Would you change our hearts? Father, we just ask today that our hearts would, would reflect these truths. Not because we've worked hard, but because we've just surrendered well. We've surrendered to the King of Kings and we have allowed him to begin to do his work as we walk with him daily. So Lord, um, these are traits that are uncomfortable. They challenge the norms of our hearts and our minds and our world. But God, would you help us to see the King who rises above all the norms of the world and, and to see his way that is so good and has such wonderful promises to it. And so help us, Father, to be drawn to Christ today. We love him. We pray these things in his good name.